Deuteronomy chapter 21, looking at verses 10 through 23, Deuteronomy 21. Uh, I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but for uh, a few weeks now, I've I've been trying to uh, provide you with some discussion questions on the sermon notes page in your bulletin. There's an old tradition going way back known as conferencing, and I think it's uh, something worth recovering today. Uh, Christians in the, in the past used to get together in uh, someone's home after church service and share a meal, and over the meal they would uh, discuss the sermon, not to sit in judgment over the preacher, please don't do that, um, but to think together about how to apply God's word to their lives. And, and so I want to encourage that uh, in our church life, and uh, These are some questions that are meant to help you have some conversation about what God's word means for us. Because we don't only want to be hearers of God's word, we want to be doers. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, verses 10 through 23. Let's, uh, Let's listen closely to God's word. When you go out to war against your enemies... And the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive. And you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife. And you bring her to your home, to, uh, you, and you bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails. And she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house, and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you've humiliated her. If a man has two wives the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him And bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, 
His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him that the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The word of the Lord. Well, uh, our home this summer is uh, surrounded by construction. If you live in or around Davidsville, you know what I'm talking about. Whichever way we go from our home, uh, we meet some construction along 403. There are temporary stoplights, and it seems like it never fails. I always hit the red light and end up sitting there for several minutes. Well, this past week, I was going through Davidsville and, of course, got stopped at the red light there in front of Leading Edge, and I was watching the construction crew uh, work with rebar, and it got me thinking about these rules. Rebar is rough building material. Rebar is rough stuff. That's because it has to be. Rebar is, is made intentionally to be rough and rugged to bind materials together and keep them from falling apart to form a bond between concrete and this reinforced steel. And this rough material helps prevent things from breaking down. And that's not a bad way to think about the rough edges of God's word here in Deuteronomy chapter 21. You could say that our passage is like a piece of rough rebar. But that's because the purpose of this passage is to keep things from falling apart. After all, that's what happens in a fallen world. Things fall apart. And that's true not just in the realm of architecture and construction. It's true in other areas of life too. And our lives depend upon all kinds of forces to hold things together. And when certain supports are compromised or when restraints are abruptly removed, the consequences can be devastating. Because the power of sin is real. And the forces of chaos are real. The weight of the world is real. And that's why powerful forces like rugged rebar are not only needed in the realm of construction, but also in other dimensions of life as well. We need reinforcement steel to keep things from falling apart. And with that in mind, I want us to look at this passage in two parts. First, the rules of restraint. We're going to look at four of them. That's, that's what they are. They're rules of restraint. Laws intended to limit the effects of sin in a fallen world. And then secondly, we'll look at the unrestrained mercy of God in Jesus Christ in this passage. First, the rules of restraint. Historically, the church has recognized there are three purposes of the law, three functions 
of the law. What are they? Well, the first use of the law is, it's like, like a mirror reflecting the perfect righteousness of God. And so when we look into it, we, we see how sinful we really are, and it drives us to Jesus. This is sometimes called the pedagogical use of the law because it teaches us to run to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Passing over the second use of the law for just a minute, the third use of the law, and after we have been convinced of our sin and need, after the law has been used by the Spirit in our lives to convince us of our need for God's grace in Jesus Christ, and after we've run to Jesus, trusting in him alone for salvation, the law of God serves as a rule of life. It is a standard for a life of grateful obedience. It instructs us in the way that we should live. But our passage today, I think it really highlights and underscores the second use of the law, sometimes called the civil use of the law, which quite simply is to restrain evil, to hold it back. Think about to bit and bridle on a horse. Uh, Jim and Sandy Tuck years ago owned a horse named Morgan, and uh, some of you might know her. A few years later, my family actually had her, and she was a little bit crazy. I've heard Pat say that about her. She's a, she was a crazy horse. Anytime you were in the saddle, all she wanted to do was run. And as soon as you let up on the reins at all, that was her cue to get going. So the only way to, to really ride Morgan was to keep her on tight reins bit and bridle, and I, I rode her with a tie down just to keep her, her head under control. Some, some laws are like that. Their purpose is to keep sin reined in. And although the law can't change human hearts or save us from our sins, it can serve to restrain uh, some of the worst excesses of evil and injustice in the world. We see at times in the world, don't we, what happens when the rule of law disintegrates and goes away. This is what we find in verses 10 through 23. As we'll see, the four laws that are laid out here are essentially rules of restraint, which are meant to protect vulnerable women from abuse in times of war. Second, to curb the destructive forces of favoritism within families. And thirdly, to shield society from uh, the delinquency of incorrigible youths. And finally, to prevent death from defiling everything. These are rules of restraint. And it is, it is crucial that we understand their function so that we are not rubbed the wrong way. We need, we need certain laws to be rough and strong like steel. So let's consider each of these rules of restraint, beginning with the treatment of war brides in verses 10 through 
14. At first, these verses about war brides might appear to condone the mistreatment of women, but look more closely with me. In reality, when you pay attention to the text, it's actually the exact opposite. It is designed to protect and maintain the dignity and rights of women in, one of the, in, in the face of one of the most brutal and chaotic situations known to mankind, the, the aftermath of war. A sad fact of history is that war has often been accompanied by rape and slavery. In the wake of one army's victory over another, women especially have often been subjected to sexual abuse and enslavement. And the law of Moses puts a restraint on that and is designed to protect the rights of the weak against the strong. It defends the honor of vulnerable women against the lustful desires of exploitive and impulsive and powerful warrior men. So just ask a couple of questions of the text. I think it's a question you should ask is, okay, whose interests does this law serve? The answer is clearly the female captive. And ask another question, whose power is being restrained? And the answer is the victorious soldier. The law is intended to defend the weak against the strong, with war being one of the most tragic expressions that kind of situation. In his commentary on Deuteronomy, uh, Christopher Wright says, there are four ways in which this law is intended to benefit captured women. These are his words. He says, number one, she is not to be raped or to be enslaved as a concubine, but is to be accorded the full status of a wife. Number two, she is to be given time to adjust to the new situation, to ritually mourn for uh, the parents who are now dead as far as she is concerned. This is to take place within the security of her new home, not in some prisoner or refugee camp. In other words, she's to be treated with dignity, consideration, and care. Number three, the law compassionately restricts the soldier's bridegroom rights by postponing any sexual intercourse with the woman until the month of mourning and adjustment is over. Number four, if the man changes his mind and will not undertake marital responsibility toward her, she is to leave as a free woman. She is not property and therefore cannot be sold as a slave. Thus, the physical and emotional needs of the woman in her utter vulnerability are given moral and legal priority over the desires and claims of the man in his victorious strength. That's all Christopher Wright. Now this rule is one of many throughout the book of Deuteronomy intended to defend the weak against the strong. And as such, I think the relevance of this rule is certainly applicable to other situations of weakness and power. The mistreatment Uh, and sexual abuse of vulnerable people, sadly, today, in our world, includes not only grown women, but boys and girls. 
It's, it's not limited either to the extremes of battlefield contexts. Yes, we can read horrific stories about things going on in Afghanistan and clearly see the need for such laws, but it comes much closer to home, doesn't it? If we follow the statistics on sexual abuse, we have many sexually abused people sitting in the room right now. And this rule teaches God's people that we have a responsibility to be on the watch and to defend. And by way of extension, this law teaches God's people to be vigilant against all such abuses and to put measures in place to protect the vulnerable from exploitation wherever it may be found. And one of the primary ways that we can protect the vulnerable and apply the general equity or the general principle of this law is by welcoming people into the family, bringing them into the church, which is the bride of Christ. Like the home of a righteous warrior, the church is to be a place where the, where the weak and vulnerable, the traumatized, are given space to grieve. It's what, it's what we're to be. Like the home of the righteous warrior, the church is to be a place where foreigners and even enemies are brought in to belong. That's, that's what's happening here. A former enemy is being brought near and included in the family of God. And like the home of the righteous warrior, the church is to be the place where the most humiliated are clothed with the utmost honor and respect and dignity and the lowliest little girl is treated like the highest lady of the house because we all belong to the one who came and conquered so that we might be his holy bride, so that we might be brought into his household. He fought for us and he died to bring us into his chambers. Just talking to a fellow gospel minister this past week and he was telling me a story about a woman who's been coming to his church for a few months now and she has uh, she has endured 30 years of spousal abuse and he said every form of abuse you can imagine you name it physical spiritual emotional verbal economic he took out credit cards in her name and ran up the debt so that if she ever ran away, she'd have to pay the price. All of these different things. And she started to go to this church, and within the church, she was telling me the story of how the church came alongside of her and cared for her. And she was, she was able to grieve all that had happened and all that had been lost and taken away from her. She found a new home a new place to belong, and she was treated with dignity and honor and protected from the schemes of this wicked man. That, my friends, is exactly what the church should be as the household of God and the bride of Christ, who is the victor. 
We've seen already in Deuteronomy that the church is to be a city of refuge. And here we see that we are to be the home of the heavenly warrior who does not mistreat women and little girls and vulnerable people. We are to be a people who actually defend the rights of the weak and vulnerable because that is the care that we have first received from our heavenly bridegroom, from our heavenly warrior when he welcomed us into his house and clothed us. And so we're a people who have our eyes peeled for all such exploitation because such sin must not even be named among the saints. And the second rule of restraint, we find in verses 15 and 17, a rule that restrains favoritism within the family. It uh, safeguards the treatment of firstborn sons. Just look at verse, those verses with me again, starting in verse 15, to refresh our memory a bit. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Now the situation envisioned here, it could very well be, and I think it is, related to the first rule that we've just looked at. In fact, it looks as though each of these rules builds upon the previous one. It's not hard to imagine a native-born Israelite woman and her son being given preference over a foreign war bride and her son. But an Israelite father may favor one son over another for all kinds of reasons, but the law of Moses put safeguards in place to limit the negative effects of polygamy, of bigamy. Hear me, please. The point of this passage is not to condone polygamy or bigamy. God designed marriage in the beginning to be between a man and a woman. The man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That is God's intent. That is God's revealed will for marriage. It's how he designed it. So this rule, you need to be careful here to, to not misunderstand the intent of this law. This rule is not about God ordaining things. It's about God putting a limit on the negative consequences of sin in a fallen world. Right? In a world where polygamy and bigamy had become the social norm. This law restrained patriarchal forms of partiality and prejudice. It's a reminder to us that God is not blind to the harsh inequalities of this world and this law is incredibly realistic addressing situation a situation as it existed on the ground as it were to put a stop to the abuses of power now in terms of the abiding significance of the law christian parents should take great pains to avoid the sin of partiality 
favoritism, which is probably a lot more common than we care to admit. If you're a parent, you should ask yourself the question, do I play favorites? We need, to, we need to examine ourselves in this area and repent where perhaps we have fallen into patterns of partiality. Parents command so much, so much power and influence in the lives of little ones. It really is a sobering thing to slow down and consider how much power and influence that you have as a parent for good and not good. And with this comes great responsibility. That's why Paul not only insists in Ephesians 6, children obey your parents in the Lord, but immediately goes on to say, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Both children and parents have responsibilities in the parent-child relationship. Many people have noted uh, how profoundly Parents, but fathers in particular, shape a child's conception or misconception of what God the Father is really like. All right, so just think about, think about the damage done by a father playing favorites with his children. Such favoritism would create in their children a fundamental a misconception of what God is really like. And so fathers, we need to remember this sacred responsibility. What we do to our children as fathers inevitably influences how our little ones view God. And we have to answer to him for the ways we represent or misrepresent him to our kids. The next rule of restraint is in verses 18 through 21, and it deals with the problem of a stubborn and rebellious son. And here we are reminded of just how seriously God takes the fifth commandment to honor our father and mother. Again, notice that the responsibilities go both ways, right? Under the theocratic civil law of the old covenant, persistent and unrepentant disrespect and disobedience was a capital offense punishable by death. That's some rough rebar, isn't it? There's no account of this law ever being invoked within Israel. I think we should be careful to note that the provisions in verses 18 through 21 represent a law of last resort. This is clearly a law of last resort. The law is not talking about young children who fail to pick up their toys or say something disrespectful to their parents. It is about seriously delinquent young adults who are a real threat to the family and the community as a whole. And the purpose of the law is to protect the family and the wider community from the foolishness of a stubborn and rebellious young man. Within Israelite society, we're talking about an entire family and posterity's livelihood. If the son is a fool now, what will it be like when he inherits the family's substance? Uh, Daniel Block points out in his commentary on verses 18 through 21 
that Moses elevates the persistent insubordination to parents to the highest class of crimes. Moses elevates the breaking of the fifth commandment to the highest class of crimes. I wonder, I wonder, is that how we think about dishonoring our father and mother today? Right? When you think about the really bad sins, the big ones, does dishonoring your father and mother even cross your mind? This is not only an Old Testament thing. The New Testament treats it this way as well. I'll just give you one example. Paul's vice list in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, which incidentally is a great example of the second use of the law. But he says in those verses, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul just going through the second table of the law. And notice how he associates the violation of the fifth commandment with something like slavery. Slavery is one of the most repugnant high crimes in our society today. But dishonoring your father and mother? It's it's a joke, isn't it? It's a joke today. In the moral world of scripture, though, the, the fifth commandment is right up there with sexual immorality, enslavement, and telling lies. So this law, this law, it is meant... Is meant to shock us into a greater hatred for sin. It's meant to make us see how heinous sin really is. And I, I think we are in need of shocking in this area. We are in need of being brought back to our senses. We, we need more rebar to keep us from becoming an increasingly profligate and incorrigibly lawless society as we see happening all around us today. The final rule of restraint is about the uh, treatment of a criminal's corpse in verses 22 and 23. It says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Notice that this this rule restrains in two ways, two directions. First, it alerts us to the reality that some crimes are not only deserving of capital punishment, but that capital punishment may be legitimately exercised by civil authorities as a warning to deter lawbreakers. That's the first thing, right? If you commit this crime, this is what will happen. Second, this law limits the the gruesome spectacle with the requirement that the criminal's remains must not be left hanging from a tree overnight. There's There's a limit to this. There's a limit even to the way that you treat the worst 
of criminals in society. Unlike other ancient civilizations, which would leave the corpses of criminals hanging for the the animals, the beasts, to, to pick apart, the law of Moses required restraint to be shown even to the human remains of the worst criminals in society. Thus, the law of Moses limits and restrains the worst excesses. But that is not all that we need to appreciate as we think about these rules of restraint because each one of these rules of restraint points us to the unrestrained mercy of God in Jesus Christ. It's almost like the the tightening of these rules of restraint explode as we look forward in faith to the gospel, to the utterly boundless unrestrained mercy of God given to us in Christ who endured all of the excesses of human evil that we cannot even begin to imagine and he did it for us and for our salvation. The gospel tells us that we are now the beloved bride of Christ. We who were once his his enemies and our righteous warrior gave himself up for us so that he might sanctify the church to present her to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And in him we have this new status. In him we have this new home and we are safe and secure in his arms. And unlike the warrior described in verses 10 through 14, Jesus did not come to take us in because he saw that we were beautiful. And we're not. Jesus came and entered into conflict and bled and died to purify for himself a people for his own possession to make us beautiful. He didn't die for us because we are lovely. He died for us to make us lovely. No one has ever done more to protect vulnerable people or to bring comfort to traumatized and oppressed people more than Jesus. Now look where we are right now, this morning. When we come together as God's household, he has brought us to his banqueting house And his banner over us is love. And although Jesus was, think about this, although Jesus was the perfectly, flawlessly obedient son of God in our flesh, he died the death of a rebellious son. A stubborn and rebellious son. Think about this. He is the eternal son of God the firstborn of creation, the heir of everything. And during his earthly ministry, he perfectly obeyed the voice of his heavenly father. He ceaselessly carried out his will. This is the one who entered into conflict for you. This is the one who sees you and desires you. And in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus came eating and drinking 
because he is the bridegroom. And it was time to rejoice in his presence. He came. He, he, he was here. But what did his generation say about him when he went about eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors? What did they call him? They said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Now, where have we heard that? In other words, his generation accused him of being a rebellious son who deserved to die using the exact language found in Deuteronomy 21, verse 10. They wanted him dead, and they killed him like a criminal, hanging his body on a tree for all to see. They made him a grotesque spectacle before the eyes of the world. He became a curse to redeem us from the curse of the law. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, by taking upon himself the curse of Deuteronomy 21-23, he became a curse in order to redeem us, to make us his own, and to set us free, that we might be his bride, that we might be presented to him without spot or wrinkle. So you, do you see what this is really all about? There's more than rules of restraint here. There is the unrestrained mercy of God. The only begotten Son of God, the heir of all things, became a man and died like a man to be disowned by his own father and mother so that we could be accepted as sons and be co-heirs with him in glory. The Son of God did that for you, he, he took the place of the disobedient and bore the curse in order to welcome us into his household and give us an everlasting inheritance as firstborn sons. Behold the unrestrained mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we do thank you for your son Jesus, our warrior bridegroom, who has conquered the world, who has conquered the world, the flesh, and the devil and death itself to come and take us to himself and present us as his bride in, in glory. And we pray that we all would find refuge in his household and discover the joy of belonging to him. We pray that you would cleanse us, Lord Jesus, because we have so many stains. And that you would open our eyes by your spirit to see you as you really are, even in passages like this where it may, might be hard for us. Open our eyes to see your glory and Cause each one of us uh, to enter into your household with thanksgiving and joy, knowing that we are yours forevermore. And you will never change your mind. You will never send us out. You will keep us and rejoice over us in your love forever. We thank you and we praise you for this. And we pray all of these things in your name. Amen.